For as long as we have lived For as long as we have known Love has carried us You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We have two scriptures this morning, uh, and the first is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people, it is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And then from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity, in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Deva, and I am really happy to be here today. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I preached at another church, and that was good, but there's nothing like coming home, so I'm, you guys are awesome. Um, I'm supposed to be on a flight that leaves at noon, <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
so we're almost done. Um, no. <laughs> Wayne said I should tell you that because I am going to be leaving right after the sermon, and otherwise you might think I was running away. Um, also, because I won't be here for the end, um, my friend Rabbi Allen is going to come up and say a blessing over us. Um, so I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you that uh, if you want prayer for anything after the service, there will be people on either side of the stage and to put your offering in the boxes on the way out, and I'm already acting like I'm on an airplane. <laughs> um, so I think that's it for the housekeeping. Um, like Haynes mentioned, uh, we this morning, and so I'd like to pray for him and pray for us before we get started. God, uh, for Steve this morning, I pray that he would have uh, a very real sense of your peace and your presence as he speaks. And for us, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to your love. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a group of people who had all the advantages that you can imagine. They were men, they were wealthy, they spoke the language, they had the citizenship, they were physically able, they practiced the preferred religion, they were heterosexuals, they came from the right tribe. These guys were oozing privilege out of every pore. And consequently, these men were in positions of significant power and leadership. Rather than use this opportunity for people who are suffering, they just focused on themselves. And even worse, they continued in patterns of domination and oppression for their own personal gain. Does anything sound familiar about this story? As I look around Genesis as a whole, I see a group of people who are oozing privilege, myself included. And if you're like me, your first thought might be to protest that statement by finding maybe an area or two where you're disadvantaged, like I'm not a man. But I am still one of the most privileged beings on this planet. And so what, what good am I doing with that? And more importantly, what am I doing to dismantle that? This story is what's happening in Jeremiah. God's talking to the group of unrighteous leaders of Israel, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. These men were in a position to care for God's people, but as a result of their deeds, the people were oppressed, they were hungry, and lost. I think it's easy to read the Bible and think, oh, those bad people. But what if instead we look at ourselves, conduct an honest search, and see where we're at with this. Kind of makes you squirm, doesn't it? We don't really want to look. I think it's like being in a bad accident. You wake up in the hospital, and you just know something's wrong, but you don't want to look under the covers or try to move or look in the mirror, because once you know what's wrong, you have to deal with it. But the privilege that we have and the oppressive systems that we're a part of are no accident. Our world is definitely broken and hurting, so we have to look. We have to understand what's really going on. I know there's some of you that are right here with me on this, and there's others that are probably saying, I'm not privileged. 
I'm not hurting people. And if that's you today, I just would ask that you keep an open mind. It's a journey. I, I was at a point where I was over here and I was saying, I'm not privileged, I'm not part of the problem, I'm not hurting anyone, kind of defensive about it. Then I moved to a place where I was shocked and ashamed, saying, how did I not see this? But don't stop there. You gotta keep going, because as much as we are part of the problem, we can help work towards the healing. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Back to these kings of Judah, uh, the shepherds that God's referring to. They were aware, and they knew exactly what they were doing. It wasn't that they didn't know God's ways, but they chose instead the path of personal gain through evil practices. God's expectations are clear. In Jeremiah 22.3, God says to the king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. By chapter 23, we're hearing, woe to those who destroy and scatter the people. You mislead them, you're driving them away, and now they're terrified, they're missing, and they're panicked. Can you see in our world where there are people who are terrified and missing and panicked due to the systems of power? Where people are beaten down by oppression? Where refugees are being horribly mistreated? Where innocent blood is being shed on the streets of our city at the hands of those in power? There is good news here, <laughs> believe it or not. And part of the good news in this text is that God sees. That's one of the names of God, the God who sees. And the first time we hear this is in Genesis 16 when God sees Hagar. She's a slave. She's a woman. She's someone who's suffering. I actually talked to Alan about this earlier in the week. Um, and his comment was that Hagar is someone that has been unseen. She's been unseen by those around her, those in her world, those in her society don't see her. But God saw her. God saw her suffering. He sees our suffering. And he can help us see the suffering of others. And Jeremiah, God sees and says he will gather up his flock and comfort them. And then verses 5 through 6 the day surely coming says the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and they shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety, and this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The root of the word righteousness is righteous. Sedek. And the first time we hear this is in Genesis six, when God is pretty much done with us people. He's ready to wipe out the human race. It says, actually, that the human race had become, uh, God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. Except Noah. The Bible says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. 
in the midst of evil, surrounded by activities that were grieving the heart of God. Noah chose to stay true to what was just and what was right. And in Jeremiah 23, in reference to the coming Messiah, it says, The Lord is our righteousness. Not only does, does he bring to us what is true and right, he also helps us live that out. So what does that look like? We're going to look at Ephesians, uh, where Paul starts off this portion by saying, Remember. Remember you were outsiders, strangers. Remember when you were without God and without hope, but now... The Lord is our righteousness. The good shepherd has come, and through his work, we were brought in. We were brought near. We were embraced and included. Verse 17 says, He came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Jesus brought peace to the insiders and the outsiders. Jesus himself is our peace. He doesn't just bring peace and righteousness. He embodies them. Jesus broke down the barriers and the walls that divided and brought reconciliation. This reconciliation comes through the cross. The cross is where hatred and hostility are put to death and peace and justice are born. Peace and justice are products of love. In a sermon entitled Love in Action, Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must see the cross as the magnificent symbol of love conquering hate and of light overcoming darkness. But in the midst of this glowing affirmation, let us never forget that our Lord and Master was nailed to that cross because of human blindness. Those who crucified him knew not what they did. And this is why we must see. Only then can we follow the example of love that the God who sees showed us through the sacrifice of Jesus. In order to advocate for love of others, for justice and reconciliation, we must embody these things ourselves. But before we can truly love others, we have to know, really know God's love for us. In John 13, 34, 35, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It seems pretty clear we can't love the way we should unless we first know God's love for us. Do you know the extraordinary love God has for you? Does it overwhelm you? Do you feel the immense weight of that love? I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little uncomfortable, but Haynes made it a little less awkward for me. (laughs) Sit in your chair with your feet on the floor. Maybe rest your arms in your lap. And if you're comfortable doing so, close your eyes and settle in. I want you to take a deep breath in and let it out. And I want you just to keep doing that. Take a deep breath in and let it out. As you breathe in, I want you to breathe in the love of God. Let it wash over you. 
And as you breathe out, let that love settle deep into your soul. Breathe in the love of God. Let it reach those places where you feel unloved or unlovable. And as you breathe out, let the love overtake those places. Just continue to breathe in and breathe out. God, I ask that you would bless us with a powerful knowing of your love. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes. God loves you so generously and so extravagantly. And God has that same astonishing love for every single person in this room. Every single person in our city, every person at your work, at your school, everyone in your family, everyone in this country, everyone in the world. And at some point just now, if you're anything like me, you probably thought, I don't know about that one guy at work, or I don't know about that girl at my school, or that politician, or that family member, somebody probably, well, but yes, them too. I think part of why we, we struggle to understand God's love for us is that we don't 100% believe that God loves every bit of us, that God loves us not because of what we do, not in spite of what we do, but because of whose we are. Think of a mother with her newborn baby. That baby recently caused her excruciating pain. That baby may have kept her up all night. That baby may not be very cute, because let's admit it, not all of them are. <laughs> I'm not talking to anyone here, of course. But when you see the look on that mother's face, that gaze of absolute love to her child, it will take your breath away. And it's not that the mom is unaware of the pain or the imperfections. She sees, she knows, and her love is abundant and powerful. And that is the love that God has for us. The reality is this love thing is really hard to comprehend. We can sit here in church and be like, yep, God loves me, and he loves you, and I'm going to love you too. And... But the love that we're talking about is not some feel-good emotion. The love that we're talking about, the love that Jesus demonstrated, the love that will change the world is a choice. It's radical, and it's hard to do. A couple of months ago, I was really focusing on this. I was reading and studying about seeing the image of God in people and loving people. John Philip Newell says to be truly reconciled is to see the light, capital L, at the heart of the other. And I was ready. There's this one week in particular, I was going to go out and I was going to see God's goodness in everyone and I was going to love on them and it was going to be great. And you probably know where this is going. I am not exaggerating when I tell you I went out and had the worst week with the general public that I have ever had with my life. <laughs> it started out with just general rudeness and people kind of being inconsiderate, and I was like, I'm hanging in there okay with this. And then over the course of six days, I had three different strangers absolutely lose it with me 
for no discernible reason. I mean, we are talking like screaming obscenities in my face. Each time I was physically shaken and like trembling on the inside for the rest of the day, you know that feeling where you're just like, oh. I was like, God, how do I do this? I'm trying, but I am failing. Loving others is a very simple command, but it's hard to carry out. Whether it's loving strangers who scream at you in parking lots, or loving someone you've got a history with, someone who's hurt you, or just loving other humans, this love has to come as as a result of the indiscriminate, aggressive love of God working in us and through us. We can't do it on our own. Not only do we need to know God's love deep down, we have to have God's help, and we have to have the help of each other, our community. And that actually brings us back to Ephesians. I didn't forget. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. We are members of the household of God. You're probably familiar with what it means to be a member of a household, either your family of origin or maybe a family that you're part of now. And whether spoken or unspoken, all families have rules. And at some time or another, you probably heard, in this house, we, followed by some absolute. When my kids were much younger, I'd find myself saying, in this house, we don't hit each other, because sometimes you got to say those things. Here's an all-play question. What are the things you grew up hearing or you hear yourself say now? In this house, we what? Tell the truth. Listen to each other. Do our best. Anybody have make your bed? That was one I grew up with. <laughs> Share toys. Eat Twizzlers, not Red Vines. There's probably a, uh, a gray duck goose thing somewhere. Uh, so we understand what it means to be members of a household. I mean, we all, we all get that. What does it mean to be a member of God's household? Jesus came as God's son to show us what it means to be a member of a divine family of origin, the household of God. In this house, we forgive, we serve, we are peacemakers, we are compassionate and gentle. In this house, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We seek truth. We care for the lost, the hurting, the oppressed. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples but he could have just as easily said they will know you're members of my household if you love one another. So we are members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place. Each one of us is invited to be a stone in the temple 
that embodies the spirit of God, the God who sees, the God of righteousness, the God of justice, the God of love. And this is beautiful in so many ways. First, Jesus is the cornerstone, the key. Isaiah 28, 16, 17, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I'll make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. The cornerstone is the righteous branch that Jeremiah refers to. God put in place this solid cornerstone for a temple that is built on wisdom, justice, and truth, constructed in love. And Paul says the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. This means the religious leaders are meant to be the foundation. I think it's easy to see places where this has gone terribly wrong in the church. If we look at particularly the way that the white church in America has treated people of color, indigenous people, people struggling with addiction, people in poverty, really anyone who's considered an outsider. And the church has not only allowed injustice to thrive, at times it has even advanced and perpetuated it. Certainly some of the responsibility for this falls on the leaders of the church and of the people who have come before us, but this does not let us off the hook. If we read the Gospels, if we study the life of Jesus and claim to be members of his household, then we must have compassion on those who are lost, those who are hurting, and those who are oppressed. Those who are excluded, those who are strangers, those who are far off, we can be agents of love and justice, not hatred and oppression. We can break down the walls that divide, and we can be built together, stone by stone, into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Through Jesus, each one of us are joined together to be part of this temple, and we are all important parts. Think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the body of Christ. You need all of the parts. And it's comfort, comforting for me to realize that although I'm part of it, I'm not in it alone. I only have this lifetime to join in this work, and I want to give it all I've got, but it's not all up to me. This is where we can support each other as a community, as we do the work of love. It's truly the picture of what Weens would call in it together. And if you're playing bingo, there's a square. God got a hold of me and changed this sermon. Initially, whenever I sat down to work on it or think about it, I was angry. I was angry about what I see happening in the world. I was angry at the way the church has so often stood by in the face of injustice. I was angry at myself for doing that too. But every single time as I started out in any type of anger, what I heard from God was yes and love and love. 
and love. It's just another glimpse into the beautiful heart of God. And I don't think it's wrong to be angry about this. I really don't. But I don't want to spread anger. I want to spread love. Cornell West says, justice is what love looks like in public. Love must be the fuel for this journey. There is no other way. In order to do the work of love, we have to see. We need to know God's tremendous love for us. We need our community, the household of God. And we need God's help. Psalm 23 was another of the lectionary readings for this week. And I'd like to read that over you as we close this morning, after which time we'll have our 60 seconds of silence. Psalm 23 is a song of confident trust in the Lord's provision. As you journey in this work of love, what do you need our good shepherd to provide? I know a lot of times I need courage and I need guidance. Maybe you need rest and renewal, or you need comfort, or his tender mercy. But listen for what speaks to you this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Come Holy Spirit, speak to us now.